I want to share with you, I'll do a little, something a little different today. It's not the typical where we do, as you know, we try to be a little more expository and get a piece of Scripture and a portion of Scripture and draw out of that and let it just speak to us, all our, all our, our, our information and all our truths coming from that Scripture. I want to kind of jump around this morning and be more of a little thematic thing. And I know it's Thanksgiving and we're preparing for, well, we just finished Thanksgiving, but it's always Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Right? As corny as, as corny as it sounds, it's thanks living, right? I, I don't usually talk that way, but it, it is what it is, right? It's the truth as a Christian. But as we approach Christmas, we have so much to be thankful to God, especially since we know who came for us, as I mentioned earlier. And so I want to continue on this Thanksgiving weekend a little bit with this, this idea, this, 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 this reality that must be a part of our lives where we are thanking God and we're praising God on an ongoing basis. We should always be doing that. Now, you know, I, the past few weeks, I have come across within our own congregation and friends that I have, how many of you are hunters? Okay, there's a couple of you. There's a few in the, in the first service too and some who aren't present. I'm sorry? I like hunt for bargains. Oh, uh, well, no, not bargain hunters. I mean like hunters, you know, like for, for yeah, it's pretty good, right? And, uh, and so when I come across these individuals and like all the talk, all the talk is about what kind of rounds they use, what kind of shotgun. It was a four point, it was a seven point. When it was dressed, it was 80 pounds. When it was, and all this stuff, all, it's nonstop. It's consuming these hunters' conversations and lives. And when I enter their lives in conversation, that's all I'm bombarded with. And I'm like, I'm not even a hunter. I, I'm learning things, but, but it's, there's an obsession because this is the season and you are like hunting and you're sitting out in the cold like, I won't use adjectives, you're sitting out there in the cold by yourself waiting for that deer to come by and, you know, dropping six bo- degrees body temperature. Is it really worth it? I guess it is. I'm not a hunter. Again, I'm be clear about that. But it's all the talk. So I'm getting in these conversations and you know what it really is? Because it's gonna, it's, I'm, I'm saying that because it plays right into what we ought to be doing as God's people, and we're instructed to do, is that we ought to testify and tell and proclaim about the things we care about. How about the person that matters the most to us, God himself and his son Jesus, amen? I mean, that we proclaim, we testify, we're always telling about the great things he's done, and, and, and what he's doing in us, through us, and for us, right? And we should be ongoing sharing that. And it's so easy to get caught up, and especially in the world that we live in. It's, it's tough. It's tough. Right? There's a lot of complicated things going on. There's a lot of concerning things going on. There's a lot of things that would very easily lead us to despair. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves dwelling on those and we end up complaining or, or, or just moaning and, and, and whining about things. But, but we're supposed to be proclaiming and testifying about the goodness of God and how in spite of all these things, we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot to praise God for. If we would just take a breath and remember who we have with us, God himself. Now I want to read a couple of Psalms to start, and then I want to share with you three narratives from the scriptures. And there are dozens and dozens, and I mean hundreds actually in scripture that you could probably think of when I go through these narratives 
and, and connect them to the praise and thanksgiving that belongs to God. But I want to read first Psalm 71, verse 15. Psalm 71, verse 15 says this, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Did you hear what I just said? That what Scripture said. I'm going to read it again because it is absolutely, when you think about it, it's my mouth will tell of your righteous acts. By the way, they're plural. Of your deeds, plural, of salvation all the day. Here's the thing. For their number is past my knowledge. I can't even count up. I can't even comprehend. I can't fathom. It is so much every single day. And in my life, if you even think about that, I can't even add them up in my mind how ongoing, how nonstop and perpetual are the great righteous acts of God for me and on my behalf for His glory. Non-stop. And we should be proclaiming there. And then I'll go to Psalm 66, verse 16. Psalm 66, 16 says this, Come and hear. The language here, in the original language, in Hebrew, and even in English, there is, there is kind of like, it's an imperative almost. There's an invitation, but it's almost like saying, you got to do this. Like, please, take attention, respond to this. Come and hear. All you who fear God. And I will tell you what He has done for my soul. We can get so wrapped up in all the material things. And by the way, I don't mean to be insensitive. It's not my point. I'm not trying to be tone deaf in any way, shape, or form. But you know what? We have everything we need. I mean, I'm just looking around, knowing everyone here for the most part, we have everything we need. I mean, I'm serious. I don't, I don't think you could honestly stand up and say that you don't have everything you need. And I, but I will say this. You may be able to say that you don't have everything you need if you look beyond the superficial and look here. We live in a place, in a land, we have everything we need. And even if you are a Christian, if you look in your heart, when if you've, you've slipped up, you've sinned, if you're not in right relationship with somebody in your life, something here, yes, you need something there. But, listen to this, let me tell you what He's done for my soul. If you're in that place, and you're lacking peace, if you're in that place, and you're lacking just that, that calm, and that there's that joy that you should have in your salvation, go back to the first place, and think about what He's done to your soul, and that He has saved you, and He has brought you into right relationship with your Creator, Jesus that is, who died on the cross, and let that peace fill you again. Go on that foundation of your salvation, that your soul is well and if it isn't, run back to God and go back to your soul. And you know what? Things start falling into line. I promise you that. You can come back to me about that. 
You start there, things start falling in line. I didn't say life is easy and perfect, but things start falling in line. And the joy and the peace that is yours anyway becomes a reality when you start to testify about what God has done for your soul. But we get distracted because I didn't get to have sweet potato pie for Thanksgiving. I didn't get to get that car because inflation's so high right now. I couldn't get that car I wanted. Whatever it is. Now, you got all that. You already have all that. And God takes care of it. Go back here. Let the joy and the peace well up from inside of you, right? There's three, three narratives, three stories in, in, in accounts in the, in the scriptures. And there again, there are many. But as I was thinking about the power of our praise and thanksgiving and what it does for our soul, not to mention to those around us and then how it glorifies God, but there are these amazing accounts where there are praises and thanksgiving being offered up to God. In Exodus chapter 15, we have the story, and most of us are familiar, of God's people who were enslaved over 400 years to the Egyptians, doing hard labor, mistreatment, a lot of stuff as not good. Not a good life. Right? And yet, they had, they had a lot of things they needed. They were fed. They were taken care of in those ways. But it was not a good life. And God is bringing them out. And they want to, they want to have deliverance. And God raises up Moses. And then, of course, we know the story. As they're leaving, after the ten plagues, after the tenth one, they're leaving. They're going. They're given permission. Pharaoh changes his mind. It hardens. His heart hardens again. And he chases them. And now they're at the, the, the banks The shores of the Red Sea. Where do we go? And we know the story. God tells Moses to raise his staff, and he does. He raises that, and the seas part. And they go through on dry ground. When they get on the other side, while as they the last Israelite crosses over and gets to where where the water should have been and now crosses to where the the new land is supposed to be, Right, they're, they're, they're heading towards deliverance out of Egypt. The waves behind them are closing in and their enemies are swallowed up and destroyed by God's hand, His working. Miraculous work of God to deliver, save them, spare them from death. And when they get to the other side, in Exodus chapter 15, listen to the first two verses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Think about this. The first thing they did is they sang praises to the Lord. They didn't wait. They didn't think about it. They got over. And it says, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And they said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. And then if you read the rest of that song, all the way through verse 18, it's beautiful poetry, and the pictures that are there that are painted with the words are powerful, majestic, beautiful, displaying God's amazing nature and character, who again is working on behalf of God's people. Powerful stuff. But don't miss something here. Because when they cross over and they're singing these words, Moses and the sons of Israel, pay attention to the individual words. Remember, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Israelites who have gone through the Red Sea onto the other side. And they're singing all together this song. But listen to the words. 
This corporate song is so personal. Listen again. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. Verse 2. The Lord is my strength and song. doesn't say our strength. He is to them, but my strength and song. And He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. Extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. And it goes on describing I, my personal, in the midst of that great mass of people. He's my God as much as He's our God as God's people. He's personal and He's powerful because of what He did. Amen? And if you read this song that is sung to God right after their deliverance, their salvation, you divide it up into two simple ways. And verses 1-12 through in this song is all about what God has done. All the great things He's done. And it's beautifully Painted here with words in this song, praising God. And here it is again, that corporate but personal. And then if you verse, move to verse 13 to 21, the second part of this song of praise is all about what God will do. First part is everything that God has done. And the second part is, well, we have a God who did this, and now we know, we have hope that He will do going into the future. We have confidence and assurance. If He can do that, He's going to watch us, provide for us, guide for us, and will see His power at work for us even as we go forward through the desert to the promised land. God is at work here, and the people are praising, and they recognize what he's done, but they also expect him to keep doing what he's already done. And they have hope because of his nature and his character. Amen? What a great song of praise after deliverance. That you thank God for what he did, and now you thank him also for what he will do with hope and confidence. Amen? So, that's that first narrative that I thought of about this praise that goes up to God because of His salvation and how He rescued His people. There's another one. There's many. But, but I thought of kind of something that was a little strange to me. And my mind went to Daniel chapter 6. And we know about what goes on in Daniel. These men, young men who are in Babylon. And of course, they are tested and they stay faithful to God. And in the end, they are physically, intellectually, socially, they advance much faster and beyond all their peers within that kingdom. And in, as a result, God is promoting and prospering these young men, including Daniel. Beyond what anyone would ever imagine. They, they, they take leadership roles. And they're healthy and they're well. And it's an incredible testimony to being faithful to God and how much God takes care of His people. Do what God wants. Do it His way. It's the best way. And He'll show Himself strong on your behalf. I'm telling you. Doesn't mean it's easy, but you'll prosper. And what happens is, in chapter 6, that Daniel is prospering. And Daniel here in chapter 6, he's doing well. And King Darius promotes him to be like kind of a, a, a sub, I mean, what's the word? He's like an assistant to the governor. He's like ruling over an area. He has a leadership role that's really high up in government. And he's prospering. And his, his peers, 
that are also have responsibilities and leadership are jealous of him. They're jealous of him. And they come up with this plan. They want to they put him down. They want to get rid of him. They want to just bust him up, right? And they get upset. They don't want to see him prospering. They don't like it. He's, uh, he's going above them, and he's getting attention from Darius. And Darius is admiring him because of his character, because of his characteristics. And he's just he's getting promoted. And so there's this jealousy. And they come up with this law to get him in trouble with the king and get him put in jail and put off to the side so he can't prosper and flourish. And they come to King Darius, and they propose, and they offer, and they make this proposition. They said, listen, Darius, King Darius, you got to make this law. you got to make this law that no one can pray to anyone in the land. No one's allowed to pray to anybody. No other gods, no, nothing. No one or anything except for you, Darius. And he's convinced. And he knows. He knows Daniel, and he knows who Daniel is. And the Bible says in chapter 6 that Darius, he kind of in his heart, because he, he admires Daniel and has a relationship with him, he, he wants to try to find a way out of this. But those who are watching Daniel after this decree goes in place, they catch him. And the Bible says in verse chapter, in chapter 6, in verse 20, chapter 6, verse 26 to 27, the Bible says that Daniel then is thrown into the lion's den, right? They, they want to bust him. And in verse, I'm sorry, I'm backing up. In verse 10, Daniel goes back to his room and he thanks God and he prays to God. The Bible says, as he had been doing. This wasn't something new for Daniel. This wasn't something that was novel. This wasn't Daniel opening the windows facing Jerusalem to pray to God Almighty, his God, when this law is put into effect, and he's not trying to be a rebel. He's not trying to shove it in the king's face. That's not what he's doing. This is something he's done all along, and he's faithful to his God, who is faithful to him. And he keeps on doing what he's been doing. So the next day when this law is there, he just does what he does. And it says there that he goes and he thanks God. It says that. He thanked God and he prayed to God as was his custom, as he had been doing. And he does what he did all along. And his friends, who are jealous, his peers, they see this. And right away, they go to Darius and they report to him and they say, Darius, and this guy Daniel, guess what he did? Listen, you've got to keep your word. Because Persian law says that when there's a decree, even you can't overrule it. You've got to follow through. You've got to put him in the lion's den. He's going into the lion's. There's no way out. And so Darius does this. And he's, Darius is trembling. He's distressed. He's freaking out because he doesn't want this to happen. He realizes and he knows who Daniel is. And he has a heart for him. He doesn't want to see this happen. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. And the next day... Darius gets up after a sleepless night and he opens that, that lion's den. He moves that stone away and he calls down. He checks in on Daniel. He says, Daniel, are you there? And when he hears Daniel call back, he's alive. Daniel calls back and Daniel is unharmed. In fact, I would go even further. Daniel isn't just unharmed. Daniel is untouched. He was probably touching the lions. They weren't touching him. 
God was with him. God protected him in an incredible, powerful way. And he's alive and Darius is filled with joy. And you know what his response is? Here, catch the connection. You know what his response? And I'll say this outsider. Because in Exodus chapter 15, these are God's people who are rescued from their enemies and spared through the Red Sea, right? But now you have this outsider, this pagan ruler in a polytheistic culture and nation and, 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 and religion. And he sees what's happened. And in verse 18, I'm sorry, in verse, I lost my notes, where'd it go? Oh yeah, in verse 25 and 26, he makes this decree and he says that all people are to fear Daniel's God, the one true God, and to listen to his words. And these are his words. For he, being God, Daniel's God, is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. This is a king a ruler saying this about Daniel's God, that his kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never go away. It will last forever. And he is a God who has dominion and power. And he's in complete control. Something happened where he realized there is a God who is God of all and Lord of all. In verse 27, he goes even further. He says, he rescues and he saves. This is Darius. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Not to mention, he probably heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they didn't get burned up in the furnace. So he is declaring how God does these miracles and he works powerfully. Notice that Darius is a witness to God's work and he makes powerful statements about God. He addresses who God is, that he is a person who is present and he is personal. He engages with his creation. He's a covenant-keeping God. When he says a word, he keeps it and he will not go back on that. He lives And not just lives, but he lives forever and that he rules and he interacts and he sees the needs of his subject within his creation. And so that he can be worshipped because he is a God and a ruler who takes care of those who are under him. And then second, Darius states how God works, not just who he is, but how he works He's a God of providence. He has a plan. He has a purpose and he guides. And he has a purpose and he orders events in such a way that even Daniel could be put into the lion's den, but that he will also rescue and deliver him from that. He's a God of power who performs miracles and signs, he says. How many of you have ever felt in your life, if you're following God, that you've been put into a lion's den of sorts. And and, and some of you might know what I'm talking about. You're following God faithfully, but then you get persecuted or you get judged or you get get put into a place where you know, God, you got to get me out of this. And and, And you're still faithful, God. And those people who are out to put you down, to destroy you, to, to, to shun your testimony and to put down your faith and to belittle your God, all of a sudden they see God working on your behalf and then all of a sudden their jaws drop. They're still here. They're, they're, and, and, and really they're hoping inside, just like Darius, 
Now, I, I, you know, I really, I, do, I really do like Sharon. I don't really want bad things to happen, but yeah. And then they realize, and then they might testify and say, wow, how'd you make it through that? How'd you make it through that hard time? How'd you make it through that challenge? How'd you make it through when people were trying to destroy you? How'd you do that? It's all God. And they start to acknowledge and they praise and testify just like Darius. And they see that God is personal, who cares, engages, and he's powerful, and he has a plan, and he's going to make it happen, and he's going to save and spare and prosper us. You know, we get so enamored and blown away by testimonies about and God's miracles, you know, where God, you know, walks on, Jesus walks on water, or the miraculous things where people get healed, or things we can't explain, and we love to get just blown away by those things. So let me just tell you something. Those are great, and they're important. And yet, a lot of those things, I don't want to say it this way, but they're superficial. They matter. They display God's power. Don't, don't read me the wrong way here this morning. But when you keep going deeper and you start talking about this idea of miracles and signs, when you start to think about the fact that God could take a sinful, prideful, filthy, nasty heart like Bob Geruda had and has sometimes, and that he can transform that and make it a heart that wanted nothing to do with anything that was good and God and godly and righteous, and all of a sudden he touches and he does the miracle... I can't change your heart. I can change your mind, and that might change your behavior for a while, but I cannot change your heart or your spirit so that you're a new person inside. Only God can do that. And something happens with Darius. I don't know his relationship with God, and it was a little more than just his mind for him to make this decree. I don't know how long it lasted, but something went here for him as well. I'm not going to pretend I know. But something happened there. The last account, and very quickly, is in Mark chapter 5. There's a man who's demon-possessed, and I'll be quick. Jesus is ministering. He crosses the sea. He goes into the region of the, 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 the Gerasenes, and there's a demon-possessed man. Now, listen, this is scary stuff in a sense. It's sad. This guy was so possessed by demons, he was so tormented, he lived in isolation in a graveyard among the tombstones. Probably not clothed, based on what Scripture says later on after Jesus touches him, hurting himself terribly. People tried to restrain him, and when they put chains on him, he snapped them, and he would break them, and he would keep doing his thing, being tormented within that that graveyard. That was his region. And I don't know, he may have hurt other people too. We don't know that for sure. But he certainly hurt himself. He probably hurt others and people were afraid of him. Don't even get close. And those who did, like I said, he broke every chain. You know what? Those chains, that they were nothing compared to the bondage he had in his spirit. He was so bound by Satan. He was tormented nonstop. And no one could help him. No one even wanted to come close to him. But then Jesus comes along. And in a nutshell, without all the details, Jesus does something that no one else could do. Jesus sets him free. Jesus brings peace and wholeness into his life, his soul as well as his body. When you address the soul, when, 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 when you're made new inside, it affects everything else. Your countenance changes. Your health is even affected. When you're, it is when you're at peace, when you're 
We all have stress. But when you give your stress to the Lord and you walk through handing it over to God and you, you, that is alleviated, it changes your health. Your blood pressure will go down, that's for sure. That's a health factor. That could be a negative thing, right? So, so when you do that and your soul is good, your body follows suit a lot of times. Not always. I'm not, that's not a promise. I'm just saying, it happens. And this man is changed absolutely away. Amazing. He was living in isolation in the graveyard among the tombs. And Jesus sets him free and puts him in his right mind. And verse 18 and 19, after Jesus does this, the man wants to cling to Jesus. He wants to go anywhere Jesus goes. Wouldn't you want to do that too if somebody did that? And your life of torment is now one of peace and calm, serenity, and, and being saved, being made whole in your soul. Wouldn't you want to do that? I would. I would want to be right at the feet of Jesus. I want to hang on to everything he does. I want to hear everything he says. I want him to touch me again. I want to see what else he's got to offer. He doesn't want to leave. And Jesus isn't being a mean old guy. When he says, in verse 89, he says to him instead, go home. Go home to your own people and tell them. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You know, he could have complained and whined and says, oh, but Jesus, I still want to get more of you. I don't even know a lot about you. Oh, he knew enough. Right here, he knew he was the Son of God and he set him free. And in verse 20, the Bible simply says, and Mark records, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the city of the, 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 the ten city area, the region of ten cities, villages, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. I mean, he goes and tells them this tormented man experiences a miracle and then he becomes an evangelist who proclaims God's goodness and power with thanksgiving and praise to God. And the people are blown away. And they were probably like, weren't you the guy who... Yeah, that was me. Here I am. Weren't you the guy who... Yep, that was me too. But I'm telling you, Jesus... That's what God did. He was merciful. And he went on and on. The people were blown away. They couldn't believe it. You know, our thanksgiving and our testimonies are powerful. And by the way, there are others where Jesus told people he healed to go and tell. And after they were touched by Jesus, they went and proclaimed as much as they could. Our thanksgiving and our testimonies are powerful. It's your story. It's not somebody else's story. It's you and God. It's you. It's your testimony. It's what you've gone through, what God has done. And when we hear testimonies and we hear praises from brothers and sisters and from each other and others, it's amazing what it does because it causes us first to worship. It should cause us to say, thank you, God. You're worthy of praise because of what you did in so-and-so's life. Wow, you're an awesome God. And not only that, when we hear testimonies and people giving thanks about God, God's moving in their lives, it gives us hope, doesn't it? Think about that. Because when you hear someone testify, you could be like this. Wow, I'm not the only one who struggles with that. And God changed them so, so God could do it for me. 
I have hope. I'm going to call out to God. I'll call together with them. I'll start thanking God that He can do it. And you have a hope that builds up inside you. I mean, how many stories have you heard about those who, have, who go through cancer? And some of you have gone through that. And then you get together with other cancer survivors and you hear their testimonies of how they got through, even with medical treatments. It gives you... Thanks, Deb. It gives you... You guys are all sleeping. I know it's 1240 or 1140, not 12:40, 11:40, but come on, it gives you hope. You have hope when you hear that. And it gives you confidence that you know what? God's going to do it. God's going to take care of me. There is hope. And then not only that, but then you can experience an encouragement. But you can find also and learn how to accept others that are also children of God and understand them better. Because you know what? You might, again, going back to what I said earlier, you might say, I had no idea. Wow, now I learned something about that person. And it's going to allow you to approach them with humility and thankfulness, realizing that they're my family and God has worked in their lives. You know what that can do? That can bind us together. Testimonies and praise binds us together as God's people. We celebrate, we end up celebrating what God has done in people's lives instead of focusing on things that bother you about the other person. I mean, I don't let any of you bother me about anything of who you are or what you do. Even in my own house, I'm perfect. No, but when you start thanking God and you start hearing what God does in their life and they're thankful and you see God working, it, you start, you, it changes and it brings you together and you just put off aside the quirks, you know? Just wait till you guys get married back there. Just wait. You're going to start seeing all that. You're going to, you're going to start, you testify to each other. You thank God for each other because you know what? You're, you're on the same team. You're going to get bounding. I'm, just, I'm telling you, and, and that's true with all relationships. And ultimately, thanksgiving and, and testimonies glorify God. And that's what we're here for, right? I have one verse to close here. Psalm 40, verse 9. The psalmist says this, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. There's that great assembly. I mentioned that before we sang our praises. Among all the people getting together, this is the best part of it. It says, I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. 